So we're starting up a new series today, and I want to give you a little background. It was in 2008 that a group, a group of elders and ministers got together and asked, what is it that defines this congregation? We know that our mission statement is to make disciples for Jesus who are eager to serve others, but how do we focus that? And out of that came four words, campus, kids, healing, hope. And what that reflected was our, uh, our, our proximity to the campus and the opportunity to do campus ministry, a long history of blessing children uh, from birth to 12th grade, and you see it in our children's ministry and our, our youth ministry programs. And then there was hope and healing. Now, at, at that time in 2008, we, um, we had ministries like Hope Chest and Cure, and, and we were doing uh, what we call now Hope Park, but it went by different names before that. But it was always a service ministry to others. What was still fuzzy was the idea of how do we minister hope and healing within our own church family. And we saw a few different ministries come and go. They, they, would, they would go away, not because they failed. They would serve their purpose, and then we would move on to the next uh, need. You had uh, ministries like Divorce Care, Overcomers Outreach. Um, we have different support groups even now. But they would fulfill their purpose. Maybe someone who was the champion for that group would move on. Most recently, there has been a ministry that God has been building us and directing us to. It was at a camp. It was at a uh, elders retreat last year that one of our elders uh, is almost inspired. He just said, I-, "I think we should have a celebrate recovery at West Ark." And God has been giving us over the years different opportunities to build towards this. So last, uh, last Sunday we had an informational meeting and, and your response was just fantastic to that. Uh, 42 people showed up to get more information about that and to volunteer to help. And we suspect that there's many others who may want to get involved as well. And if you'll look in your bulletin today, there's a, a web address westark.org slash cr there's more information about it there and you can you can get whatever information you may need but along, as, as we get prepared for that lord willing we'll start a uh, a full-blown celebration recovery event uh, in on january of 2018 but in the meantime this is a good teaching opportunity for all of us to really figure out what it means to have this hope and healing or the hope of healing because I think that's one of the things that's not mentioned very often when it comes to serving Jesus Christ I want to admit something to you and I wonder if you'll agree with me but I think it's something that we all see and maybe sometimes we even think this ourselves that we come to Christ because we feel that Without Him, we're not going to get through the pearly gate into heaven. That we know we can't be good enough, that we know we don't have enough ability within ourselves, that we've got to have the right kind of relationship with Jesus and with God to get through the pearly gate. Now, other than that, if we dared to admit it, we don't really 
admit that there's anything else that we need from Christ. That other than that, what we're supposed to do is stay out of trouble and help other people and by all means show up when the church gathers because we don't want God on our ba- on our we don't want to be on God's bad side. Now, when I say it like that, you might say, oh, no, I've never thought such a thing. But do we practice it without thinking it? Do we, for example, believe, can we all accept that God is on our side when we need healing from the brokenness of life? Now, are we able to go a step further and admit that the broken people are not just those people, (laughs) that the broken ones are us, too? This hope for healing begins when we recognize that good works, support groups, the church getting together and practicing healing and celebrating recovery, that that's not just for addicts. That it's, it's not, it's actually it's for anyone who hurts, anyone who has habits or hang-ups, It's really for the human race. This study on hope for healing uh, is based on a book called Life's Healing Choices, and there will be a class starting next Sunday on that topic. But I, I I want us to recognize something today. That before we knew how to categorize and diagnose and label our brokenness, Before we had a DSM-5, if you know what that means, then you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Before we had uh, ways of putting labels on people with names to identify their problems or even to do that for ourselves, God was in the business of healing. It was His passion and it was His desire to bring healing. Thousands of years ago, The prophet Isaiah speaks these words on behalf of God. God saying to a broken, fallen people, a people who were supposed to be, by the way, the chosen people of God. And he says of them, I know what you're like, but I will heal you. I will lead you. I will give you comfort until those who are mourning start singing my praises. No matter where you are, I, the Lord, will heal you and give you peace. God knows what we are like. We we need to be unafraid to have this sort of honesty before God. With ourselves, with one another, but especially with God. And let's just start there. Because we all know we can't lie to God, even if we try to. Even if we try to deceive ourselves, you cannot deceive your Creator. God knows what we're like. Let let me do this with you. Just um, Here's a little thought experiment, okay? I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you think about this. And if you want to write down your answers, that's fine. If you want to just mull them over, that's fine. Do you ever, have you ever been in this situation where you know the right thing to do, and you don't do it? Have you ever been in that situation where you know, you know, I really ought to do this, I ought to give, I ought to put money in the plate, I ought to, you know, I ought to do something that, that is right and proper here, I ought to do something to take care of myself. You know it's a right thing, it's a good thing, and you don't do it for some reason. 
Think about it if you've ever been there. Let's change the question up just a little bit. Have you ever known that something is wrong? Something you shouldn't do. Something you know it's not good for you. You don't need that other piece of chocolate cake. You, you, don't, you, you, you don't need to go to that website. You, you, don't, you don't need to, uh, to smoke that or shoot that or drink that. You don't need to be thinking like that. You don't need to be saying those things about that person. But you do it anyway. Have you ever been there? Let me ask you this. When is the last time you committed a sin and you didn't know until later it was a sin? Now that third question is one that I can, I can remember a few examples on my own. And they all come from a time when I was really young. When I was learning. I think most of us, it's not a matter of information. We, we know pretty clearly what sins are. In fact, if you know something is a sin, that's a victory. That is a theological victory because you recognize it as wrong. That means you've stopped justifying it. Now, the ability to stop doing that or stop thinking that or stop heading in that direction, that's where we're going to need help. But I think for most of us, we know the right, we know the wrong, and the dilemma is, when we're honest with ourselves, the thing that we should be doing is not what we do, and the thing we shouldn't be doing is the thing that we end up doing. You don't want to condemn that person to the fires of Hades. You know, that person that cuts you off in traffic. You don't want to question their parentage. But you do. Why? Well, long before we knew how to categorize, diagnose, and label our brokenness, Paul the Apostle named it. In Romans 7, he says, and by the way, he's speaking of himself, but he's speaking in a way that's universal. He's talking about what we all experience. He says, If the power of sin within me keeps, within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, then I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I can decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Now, if you've ever felt like that, you're in the company of Paul the Apostle. Before our modern definitions and categories, Paul the Apostle described what it is like to have this human brokenness, this spiritual conflict that exists within us. Our sinful tendency, which comes from our will to shape our own destiny and to do whatever we want, versus the image of our Creator that He has placed within us and which is actually very strong within us, but it fights against that sinful tendency. Here's the good news. God is on our side. And that's what I want you to understand. 
Because often, the church has preached and taught about sin in such a way that says, you have got to avoid sin, and if you don't, God will catch you, and he will burn you, and he will damn you, and he will condemn you. When that's not what God is after at all. His own son says that God is not willing or God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to die. He's working for salvation. But we have to turn to him for that help. Listen to the way Paul describes it here. He says, if I realize that I have that basic human condition, that I can't do it, then obviously I need help. That's me. Is that you? I'll be very surprised if that's not you. But I don't know what it is. Well, yeah, I do. Scripture tells me what it is that keeps us from admitting that we need help. It's because long ago, thousands of years, oh, ages, eons before Paul, we were delivered a lie. And it's the lie that we are God. So there's that story in the garden with the new humans, Adam and Eve. And they know that they are part of the creation. They know that they are part of the created order. And they are happy in their role. And they have a special relationship with the creator. And they have a special relationship with the creation. And along comes the lying serpent. And suggests another way of doing things. And when Eve explains, well, listen, we're not supposed to touch the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it will kill us. Serpent says, no, it won't. You'll not die. God knows that if you eat the fruit from that tree, you'll learn about good and evil and you will be like God. The lie of the devil, the lie of the serpent is, hey, cut out the middleman. Why be the caretaker and the middle manager of creation? Why don't you just be gods yourselves? And this story is universal. Because every time that we think that we can do better, let's improve on creation. Let's improve on the human species. Let's improve on the environment. Let's set up a government that will be better than anything that that, that God could come up with. Let's Let's make our lives whatever we want it to be. You've been given the same lie. It's the same lie. It just gets adapted. Satan's the author of the one big lie. It just gets, you know, covered by other people and they put a different tune on it. And so, so. But it's this whole idea that we can, we can play God. We buy into it. Some of you remember those old ads where it's like, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Wow, there's a lot of authority behind that statement. Um, the, um, it's about the same level of authority and reality as those of us who try to play God in our lives. And we don't realize that we're playing God 
We probably get into it because of good intentions. But here's what it looks like to buy into this lie. You know, we, we, we see what it was like for Adam and Eve. They accept that this boundary, this restriction that they were given that would lead to their death, they think, well, maybe it is good. And they buy into it. But what does it look like for us? Because we're not, we're not being tempted by fruit that we're not supposed to eat. Well, for us, it, it comes in one of these three forms. One, it looks like a promise to control our problems. And so we go about trying to control our problems. We think that maybe deep within us there's some untapped resource that will enable us to do it ourselves. That we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That the reason why I haven't stopped eating so much and working out is because I'm just not really digging in. I'm just being kind of lazy. What we never admit to is that we need more help than what we're capable of. Now imagine for a moment, you say, well, I don't know about that. I just haven't tried hard enough yet. I can quit anytime I want. I can start anytime I want. Okay. But you know that there's times that you're going to have to seek help from outside sources, right? I mean, tell me what kind of sense would it make if you realized that, um, you know, you needed a heart bypass and you said, ah, you know, I've got sharp objects at home. I'll just do some home surgery. Yeah. I mean, I can take care of it. I've attempted minor home surgery. I don't recommend it, okay? Um, that's another story. You don't need the gory details. But it, it's, it, you, you have to seek help. Now, we understand that, and only an idiot like me would think that he could get away with that because he, he has an old scalpel. But, but most of us realize in areas like that, we need help. Why can't we see that when it comes to living like the Creator wants with our, with our problems? No. Part of it is, and, and, and these are connected, is that sometimes we want to try to control others. We, don't, we, we, we worry that others might be trying to control us. Or our problems may come from others, and so what we do is we try to control them. How many of us have told ourselves, you know, my problems are nothing. It's all my family, my kids, my parents, my spouse, my friends. If I could just make all of them happy, if I could just keep all of them from going crazy, then I would be fine. That's what it's like to be a thermometer. A thermometer reads the temperature in the air, and reacts. A thermostat reads the temperature in the air and changes it. It sets it. But some of us think that we're thermostats and we're really thermometers. And so we're trying to fix everybody else in our attempt to fix ourselves. And let me tell you, both of them are a dead-end path. When we try to control others... We're playing God. We may even tell ourselves that it's worth it. I'm just trying to keep everybody safe. I'm just trying to keep, I'm just trying to protect everybody. I'm just trying to keep everybody from having problems. Church leaders even do this. That we think that it's our job to fix the church. I have confessed this to other ministers. I've talked to other ministers about this. Uh, It is one of the things that you see often in ministry. I'm responsible for all those people. No, you're not. You are responsible for preaching the truth. You are responsible for being honest and sincere. 
God will take care of His church. You know, if anybody can get away with saying that, you know, the church is His, it's probably me. All I got to do is have a T fall down out there, and it's the church of Chris, all right? And at Lake Jackson, it was scary because the T actually would come out of the brick where it was at. And that scared me. I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, people are starting to get... When we drove into town, that T wasn't up there. And I thought, okay, they've really gone too far down here. We need to turn around and leave. That's just the name on the door. The church belongs to God. And we're His. Why wouldn't we go to our Creator? Well, the other way we play God is trying to control our image... Maybe this is why we try to control our problems, because we don't want anybody to think less of us. Maybe this is why we try to control others, because we're afraid of how that makes us look. We want others to do well. We tell ourselves, aren't we supposed to put on a good image as Christians? Aren't we supposed to be an open book to the world? I mean, we, we bury ourselves under all this pressure to get it right. And then you need to remember... Jesus did do it right. And he did reflect God. So much so that if you saw Jesus, you saw God. And yet, some people still condemned him and crucified him. So, if you're under that burden where you're trying to shape your own image and some people aren't buying it, I guess I'm just going to ask, you know, how's that going for you? Because... It didn't, it didn't work for Jesus. And let me put it like this. You need to understand the difference between character and reputation. You can have good character. We can have good character. Jesus had the character of God. He was God. He was the Son of God. He had the mind of God. He was one with God. His character was, was perfect. But depending on who you asked, and he was aware of this, his reputation was up to the minds of others. In fact, he told the generations that would criticize him how fickle they were. I'm going to paraphrase it, but he said, you know, he said, well, what am I going to do with you? You're like children in the marketplace singing your tunes, mocking one another. Complaining and crying. John the Baptist shows up. He comes out of the desert. He's, he's, he's wearing a fur trapper's coat. And he's got, he's got your cricket legs hanging out of his mouth because he's been eating honey and wild locusts. And you all say, he's got a demon. Meanwhile, I show up. I'm dressed reasonably well. And I go to weddings and you say, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, you can't please him. Jesus was aware of the fact that he couldn't control that reputation, and neither can you and I. If people are seeking the truth, then they'll see it. If they're not, then they'll condemn us. But we don't get that kind of control. And that's the whole thing about playing God, is that we can't control these things. But for us, it's not just a matter of wanting to be good. It's a matter of us trying to manage our sins ourselves. Proverbs 28, 13, you can't whitewash your sins and get by with it. You find mercy by admitting them and leaving them. You've got to know what you're dealing with. You can't just hide it. I usually don't like the term cannot. I hate that term. 
I hate it when we say to ourselves, you know, when we're talking about plans and hopes, ah, oh, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that, well, we just can't do that. Boy, I stirred stuff up here recently on Facebook uh, when, uh, you know, I just kind of joking around and I said, you know, hey, Fort Smith ought to go for that, that Amazon, you know, headquarters. Why not? You know, people, oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. Well, I know we can't do it. But let's do it anyway. I mean, you know, I mean, why not? I know what our chances are if we don't get in the game. Big zero. But I said, I don't like cannot. But there are a few occasions where the word cannot can help you. <laughs> I I actually support cannot in these situations. One, when we realize that we cannot change our past. Sometimes the word cannot helps, and this is one. You, You can learn from your past. You can redeem your past, or rather God redeems it if we allow him. But you can't change it. It will be what it will be. And when you keep trying to change it and it doesn't change, that leads to regret. Which, by the way, regret is worry in reverse. You get that? Yeah. That's just worry pointed towards the past. It also leads to people shooting on themselves. Hmm. Oh, I should have done this and I should have done that. And if, or other people tell us, you know, you should have done this and you should. Do you understand that the, that the phrase should have doesn't work in English? You can't should have done something. Now, you should brush your teeth before you go to bed. Uh, you should pray for those that you love. See, I'm talking about things that can happen now or in the future. You, you should make notes. You should think about this. You should keep coming back for all these lessons. You should ask yourself all these things. These are all things you can do. But I can't should have. I should have invested in Amazon 20 years ago when it was cheap. Yep. How's that working for you? See, you can't should have. You can't do this. And when people use that as an excuse, you know, I call into uh, some, you know, one of my banks or something like that, and I tell them, you know, hey, this isn't working. Or I call in and I say, I'm having problems with this. Oh, well, you should have done this. Well, maybe I should have, but right now that's not helping me. But we do that to ourselves. We live with that should have like it helps. Quit shoulding on yourself, okay? You cannot change your past. And you cannot control others. Everybody always talks about what kind of superpower would you like to have. You know, one of the superpowers that the characters have is they can control others. Oh my goodness, that'd be the one I'd hate. That's just too much responsibility. Give it up. But we try to do it. We think that there's ways to do it. We even have good intentions. What we're talking about here is not giving up responsibility. There's a boundary to responsibility. We have responsibility for our children. We have responsibility for one another. We have a responsibility with our own behavior to influence, guide, or direct, or to just simply live in covenant with others. But you have to know where the limit is. And that's an entirely different lesson, and we'll get into that later. But let me just say a word here to a few uh, folks. We even have words for those who try to control. We talk about helicopter parents. You know, the parents that hover over their children. 
I'm going to let you decide if you are one or not. But I'm going to give you this. As, 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 uh, as well-intentioned as that may be, you're making it worse. Okay? Helicopter parents, please, I'm trying to free you from this anxiety. You're making it worse. Your situation creates the situations that you don't want to happen. You know, have you ever seen the opening of MASH? You remember that show, MASH? filmed on the hills outside of Pepperdine University, by the way. But anyway, here comes that helicopter. And I always thought it was interesting that you see all those people on the ground, and they're all like this, and they're all running. And then when the helicopter gets there, they're all like this. I remember asking my dad, why are they wandering around like cavemen? He said, because they don't want to get their head chopped off by the blades. Ah, when you're a helicopter parent, that's what your kids are doing. They're scrambling around. They're running around because they're trying to hide from the big high-power anxiety stress of the helicopter blades. Or if you're helicoptering anything, you're making it worse. And for the rescuers out there, let me say this. It's always our tendency to want to help people, and instead, some of our efforts, if we go too far, we're making it worse. You ever seen the little butterfly coming out of a cocoon? You know, and it struggles and it's ripping that thing open. We might want to help it. Oh, it's helped the little butterfly. We can help it. We ought to make it easier. We ought to find ways to make those an easy, you know, zip open cocoon so that butterfly can get out. We We need a whole campaign on this. Let's start a Kickstarter and a Facebook group. Poor butterflies. God knew what he was doing. They have to go through that struggle of busting out on their own because if they don't, they will not pump the vital fluids into their wings so that they can actually fly and get away. You try to rip one out of that cocoon, it'll just fall on the ground. It just becomes a little, it becomes bird food, basically. We need to remember that too when we try too much to help others. We can't control them. We can help, but we cannot control. And we cannot, and this is the big one, just like we cannot, uh, we, we try to control our image and we try to create our own reality. Our good intentions, our willpower, our intelligence, our power, our wealth, none of it is going to be enough to change all reality. Let me put it like this. You get an acorn and you plant an acorn. You answer me, okay? Stick with me. You you take an acorn, you plant it. It grows up and becomes what? Acorn, acorn, acorn. You plant an acorn, you plant it, it grows up to become? Tree. And what comes off those trees? Acorns. Somebody said leaves. Uh, Acorns. (laughs) Then that acorn goes down into the ground and it becomes what? Tree. And then you get it. Okay, acorn. God is the creator. He makes creation. And then creation is. Creation doesn't create another God. It can't. That's what gets the people, us, in trouble is when we start creating our own gods. That is a unique situation. God alone, who creates all reality by speaking it, He's the creator. We're the creation. One cycle, that's it. Now, because that's so unique, the secret to getting past this idea of playing God, the reason why we shouldn't play God and believe the lie 
is because we need to learn to have the humility that accepts that God is God and we are not. Sounds simple, but it's so profound, and it's the first place we start. Uh, In Scripture, James says, God, and he's quoting Scripture. James is quoting earlier Scripture. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. That is our first healing choice. It's a good discipline. It's one that I've found in my life I have to come back to again and again and again because there's always a new temptation to want to control my image or to control others, to change my own reality, to create my own reality. And I have to remind myself that it is my place in creation to humble myself before my Creator because He is God and I'm not. And that's good. The first healing choice is that if we can say, I choose to admit the reality that I am not God. This is not, this is not by the way, a bad thing. This is a good thing. I admit then that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong things and that my life is unmanageable. I'd like to add the word unmanageable by myself. Because with God's help, He provides the managing of life. He manages our lives, not us. Again, we can quibble over words, but do you see that the first choice, and this is what's so important, is to get the God part of it right. So when we talk about Celebrate Recover, or we talk about the church being the church, when we talk about us getting together in worship, do you understand that this isn't just about all of us trying to check on all of us, and trying to change all of us, and setting an image for all of us, but you've got to begin with God. What's the so what for the day? The so what is this. I'm going to give you three things. Don't be on the screen. Remember it. First, I want to encourage you to pray about it. Start with you and the Creator. All other honesty is going to follow when you and your Creator are honest. You can lie to me. You can lie to others. You can lie to yourself. But you can't lie to your Creator. He knows. He sees. And that's a good thing. Because what he thinks about you is all that really matters. And he's been clear that he's on your side, he chooses to redeem you, and that he loves you more than anyone else can ever love you. So choose to admit your sins to him. Be humble. Secondly, I want you to meditate on it somehow. Write it down, text it, blog it. Uh, whatever, but meditate on God's ways. And finally, share it. And that's why we come together in groups. Find someone you trust. Talk about this. Share it. But God said it's not good for us to be alone. Well, we start on this journey then. And I want to ask you to consider doing this this morning. Humble yourselves before God. As we stand and sing this song, I hope that you will be willing to humble yourself before God in whatever way is appropriate. Let's stand and sing.